Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Well, welcome everybody to the Must Read Alaska show. I'm your host, John Quick, coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. And if you've tuned in today, you you get a special treat. We have a double header today. I had Simon on earlier today who's the chief White House correspondent for Today News Africa, which is the, one of the biggest news uh, conglomerates of uh, in Africa, which is very exciting. He's there in D.C. reporting on the things happening uh, in and around the Joe Biden administration. And he had a really awesome story to, to share about how he got to the U.S. and what it's been like for him here as the chief White House correspondent for the news station that he represents. So if you get a chance... Go back and listen to that episode. It was pretty enlightening and pretty cool to sit there and listen to a guy that really has uh, had a great experience here in the U.S. So, um, but without further ado, we have a special guest today, Scott Kendall, who is one of the main uh, orchestrators behind ranked choice voting. He also successfully passed another ballot initiative that had to do in Bristol Bay uh, with the with the salmon and pebble mine there, and he's been the chief legal. Uh, correspondent for uh, Lisa Murkowski and been the uh, chief of staff for uh, Governor Walker. He's been a whole bunch of different things. So without further ado, welcome, Scott, to the Mustard Alaska show. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. Well, Scott, uh, for folks that have been, like I like to say, living under a rock or in a closet, um, tell people just briefly kind of in your explanation of, of why you got involved with ranked choice voting in the first place and why you think it passed and, and was successful passing, you know, I don't know, uh, nine months ago or whatever, when it, or not nine months ago, maybe what, five months ago on the ballot in November? Um, well, you know, it, you know, we used it for the first time. It went remarkably well. Um, I became involved um, because I sort of, I had seen election results that were, I think, aberrant. And by aberrant, I mean, they seemed to defy or or at least potentially defy the will of a majority of the people. And Alaska's got a bit of a history with that, of course. Um, you know, there, there's two elements here. There's the closed primary, which we've only had very recently since 2000. And then there is the spoiler effect that you can get in a general election where in a in, under the old system, you could win with any amount as long as you had the most. You know, if there were four people in the race, Theoretically, you could get 27% of the vote and win. Um, we had a big history with that. We had, for example, um, Governor Knowles, of course, kind of won famously because um, the Republican Party fractured at the time. You know, we had. Um, what did he win? You know, Didn't he win by something crazy like 500 votes or? Yeah, yeah, several, maybe even two or 300. I'll have to go check the math. But, but no question that he won because of the spoiler effect. Um, we had kind of a lesser version of that with Senator Ted Stevens. Um, Ted Stevens was defeated by Mark Begich. I think he was defeated by Begich by about 3,000 some votes. Well, the reality was Bob Byrd ran to the right of Ted Stevens, mostly on choice, but generally to the right of him, took 15,000 votes. Also, again, no question there, without Bob Byrd in the race, Ted Stevens wins. 
um, in the Senator Murkowski's, you know, famous write-in, um, we had something that sort of, it, you know, it turned out to be the will of the people, I think, but um, we had a, we had an issue where, um, you know, she lost her primary narrowly to Joe Miller, and then we had a three-way race. Now, she won with about 39% to Joe Miller's uh, 35, um, and then you had Scott McAdams for the Democrats down there in the 20s. But you could imagine, you know, sort of the margins were close enough. You could imagine any of those three winning and, you know, approximately 60 percent of the state could say, what the heck? That's not the person I wanted to win. Um, so it really, to me, it was a twofold problem. It was the closed primary where, you know, eight or nine percent of the electorate decides who's on the ballot in the general election. And then the general election allowing for spoilers, which, of course, um, we've seen that one side or the other will encourage or entice in a Green Party candidate or a Libertarian candidate to damage the other party's candidate, that's not democratic in my mind. That's not representative. So really, ballot measure two was sort of a, a tool to create an unhackable election system where people couldn't use basically dirty tricks to win when a majority of the people didn't want it. So do you see yourself, do you see this uh, being reproduced all over the U.S. eventually. I know that there's a, you know, couple of states that have got on board with it, and you know, different counties and municipalities around the U.S. that have kind of toying, you know, testing it out. But do you see this being the new law of the land ten years from now? Um, you know, I I don't. I think it's that whole, um, you know, it's it's you know, I'm a fan of federalism, by which I mean, I'm a fan of states to the extent possible doing it their way. Is it going to be the right thing for every state? I doubt it. Um, I don't think California is going to fall over itself to enact something like this because I think they've got Democratic Party governance and that's what they want. And the, the leaders there won't let it happen. You know, in a state like Alaska, we're uniquely suited. where about 60 percent of us don't really affiliate with either party, even though, and, you know, I think we arguably as a state as a whole have a center center right sort of perspective. Um, you know, it depends on the issue. When you look at issues of privacy, we tend to kind of go much more to the middle. When you look at issues of resource development, you know, we move over into a pro-development stance. So I think it, it fits us like a glove, but it's going to it's gonna be different state to state, what works, what doesn't. Um, and, you know, whether they want open primaries, whether they want ranked choice voting, of course, Maine has just ranked choice voting, but they have closed primaries. So that's very different. You look at somewhere like Georgia, they have these runoff elections, which are, you know, there's no primary, they just have the election and then they have a runoff, which is very strange. And then of course you got to run a second election in December. I can't think of anything worse than having to run a, a whole separate election. So this is obviously, you know, ranked choice voting is a tool that could actually sort of for efficiency's sake and not let, you know, sort of one party carpet bomb for, you know, one race as we saw, I think in the, um, the U.S. Senate race there between Warnock and uh, Herschel Walker, um, you know, we saw, I don't know what it was. I wouldn't surprise me to hear it was a billion dollars. But, oh, yeah. you know, putting people through that, I mean, could you imagine going into December and, you know, across Thanksgiving, there's another election coming? I, I can't imagine anything worse. So what do you say to the folks? I think one of the biggest um, arguments that I've heard against ranked choice voting, and this is from people just everyday folks that I've run into here in Nikiski and across Alaska is they, it's too complicated um, and they don't quite understand it. What's the, what do you say to those folks? 
I mean, I don't concede that it's complicated, but I do concede that it's different, right? You know, it is, it's just not what we're accustomed to. We're accustomed to making that binary choice. And it forces us to say, this person's my favorite. I'm, I don't love these other two people, but gosh, I sure do have a preference between them. And so it's a little bit of a different way of thinking. Um, and it is a shift, you know, when you have someone who's 65 years old and for 40 some years, they've been voting a certain way. It's a shift. I don't think the open primary is much of a shift because Alaska used to have a version of that. So I think that part is, if anything, it's simpler because you're not choosing from different ballots. If you're a nonpartisan, there's one ballot. Um, the ranked choice voting just takes that little bit of shift in your mind. But honestly, you know, Australia, Ireland, they've been doing it for 100 years. I don't think they're inherently any smarter than we are. Uh, yeah, I'd like to think so. And I do think that at the end of the day, um, you know, I think there was frustration and understandable frustration by the delay in tabulation. That's something that can be changed. So I, I understand that part of the angst. But I think in terms of this is my favorite, this is my second favorite, we think like that all the time. So I don't think it's a insurmountable shift for folks to make. And the data showed the spoilage rate of ballots was as lower, lower than a conventional election. So when yeah. push came to shove and people looked at the ballot, they seemed to know what to do. Yeah, I think this is, I don't blame the division of Alaska, the vision of elections for any of this because it was their first go at it, but it would be really awesome to get some sort of a, a feel for what came in that night as opposed to having to wait three weeks. And I'm sure that it'll evolve and change and they'll get better as time goes on it was their first run at it so it's it's i'm not throwing any stones at them but i think that that was a frustration for folks and i think it'll be improved down the road definitely yeah 100 percent. i would i would echo what you say which is the division of elections you know not only implemented a new system they did it twice with the passing of don young so my hat's off to them that being said i think two slight changes would make the experience better first of all we could do what Florida does, which is basically pre-canvas every ballot we can pre-canvas, meaning more of those absentee ballots get counted on election night. So, you know, rather than 60% of ballots counted on election night, you push way up towards 90%. That gives you a better feeling. But the other part of it is there's not actually a reason under ballot measure two, they can't run a tabulation on election night. That won't be final, just like it, you know, our, our elections were never final before two weeks before. It's just it gave us a feeling for where things were. And I think we could have seen, for example, in, you know, a good example would be the Murkowski Chewbacca race. I think if people saw those tabulations and saw, oh, holy cow, there goes 90 percent of those votes to Lisa. She's going to be this much ahead. You know, it just lets you call races earlier and move on with life rather than, you know, creating an artificial mystery box when, you know, those votes are cast. The division knows what they say. Just let the people see it. Just you know, make sure you communicate this is not final till it's final. Yeah. And it never really was final until weeks later anyway. So right. I think that that'd be a good move on the division of elections if they move towards that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, state politics just to get your take on, you know, what do you think are a couple things the Alaska Senate and House could accomplish this year? I think the, you know, last couple of years have been frustrating for folks as you know sometimes the house hasn't even organized for I don't know weeks and weeks and weeks it seems like and this year hopefully looks like maybe they could get some stuff done what's what do you think they could do this year 
and you know, a couple, two or three things that you think would be important out the gate for them to get done. Yeah, I mean, I I do think like you do, like boy, seeing the Senate organized almost immediately that that did my heart good. You know, the House itself, you know, got organized right quick. That was very positive. They didn't really lose a step. And I mean, they've got some things to wrestle with, but I think the field of dispute is narrowing. I think we're starting to see sort of a, you know, what we didn't see three, four years ago, which is this broad agreement that POMV is POMV. You know, we, we're not going to overdraw the permanent fund. I, I That seems to be kind of a widespread view now is here are the tranches of money we've got. Now that we've agreed on kind of the size of the, the income, now we know the size of the problem. Um, you know, the war in Ukraine obviously um, has created a little bit of an issue for the state in that, you know, very predictably, even though we said we'd never do it again, oil hits 130 bucks a barrel and people go a little nuts. Um, <laughs> you know, we've now got a, you know, a budget that balanced and had a surplus and we're barely going to skid in there with kind of maybe a tiny deficit, but like that surplus vanished. And, you know, I don't know how many times we're going to say it, but, you know, oil prices go up and down. The POMV is a big shock absorber, though. So we've got that. from, And by POMV, I, of course, I mean the percentage of market value, the permanent fund acting as an endowment and spitting out a predictable amount of money every year. And as long as we don't overdraw it, it will do that every year and it will grow a little bit every year. So I think that being kind of screwed down is huge. Now the state has to kind of pivot and look at what are we going to value? I think there's kind of broad agreement. We've got to look at education funding. That BSA is out there. Now there's a tension, of course, between how big a boost and are we going to have accountability measures? But I think everyone kind of realizes when you freeze funding for a decade, we got a bit of a problem. But we have, you know, we have a performance problem as well. So that tension is going to be interesting, but I think productive. I think you will see things move forward on education in more than just kind of a a sound bite way. And I think that'd be very positive. I do think they've got to deal with the retirement system. You know, it's, you know, whatever you think of prior systems, you know, certainly I know people who have tier one retirements and good for them. Tier one is not something we'll ever be able to afford again. Um, but people don't realize, you know, we have teachers and policemen who don't get social security. So when we give them essentially just a 401k, it's just not competitive. I mean, I don't know how many troopers I talk to who are like, I'd love to stay here. I'm five years in. I'm going to Seattle. And so we've got to find some way to compete. And I have seen, you know, the actuarials that show we can provide a better retirement system for not more money. We just have to be smarter with our money. So the fact that those discussions are actually happening and not in the sense of people shouting from their corners, I think enormously, um, enormously important and productive. The biggest issue, I think, is workforce, though. And yeah, that's tied to the other two issues because, of course, education ties to workforce in the future, retirement systems, <clears throat> it ties to workforce, but only for public employers. I'm talking about, you know, the workforce crisis we've got writ large, which is right now already employers are just struggling to get anyone to show up. And that's a multifaceted problem. But what people aren't thinking about is because of the good work of our delegation, we have billions of dollars coming to our state tens of thousands of jobs. And it's going to be a great tragedy if all those jobs go to people from outside, come here, do the work and leave versus, you know, giving those jobs to Alaskans, but we've got to have Alaskans ready to work. And that's, you know, education, career and technical education. And and really, it's housing and childcare. Like, you can't tell someone to go to work 
and earn less than their childcare costs. That's not how capitalism works. No one's going to do that. They're not going to work to lose money. So we've got to find a way. And, and there's a, you know, there's a hundred potential solutions, but we've got to find a way. Maybe that's tax breaks for companies that provide it. You know, maybe it's some subsidies at the margins, but we've got to, we've got to kind of wrestle that to the ground, you know, ASAP because those jobs, that funding is coming and we don't have the workforce to support it right now. So speaking of potential jobs that are coming, um, how big do you think it is for Alaska to to get this? I believe it was 285 million uh, that Mer Senator Murkowski and my guess is Senator Sullivan helped secure for the state of Alaska for the ferry system. I think that's, I mean, that's huge in the sense that it's also a multiplier. You know, it's, first of all, we need that, those ferries, those ferries are infrastructure for us and for Southeast, but also, you know, the jobs building, maintaining, operating the vessels, that's, that's a huge engine of economic opportunity. It's going to expand tourism. So I think, you know, $250 million sounds like a lot of money, but that money will have a multi-billion dollar effect. And of course, the state's got to come in and match some of that money. So hopefully we don't, you know, we don't let any of that slip away because I think that, that could be a huge deal for Southeast in particular, but statewide. So I was uh, talking to Ivan Moore yesterday. I had him on the show and he told me a stat that I was not aware of, which is uh, Congresswoman Mary Patola has a 56% approval rating. Um, how well of a job do you think Mary's doing or not doing and uh, why, just from your standpoint? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much a work in progress. I think we're all still sort of adjusting. Um, it's like moving to a new house. You know, Don Young's always been there and it's, you know, it's still very strange for me. I'm looking over here at a picture of me and Don Young together at his office, like, you know, but, um, and I don't know Mary well. I know most people. Um, I've met Mary maybe once or twice, but I will say, um, you know, putting rhetoric aside and tweets aside, when I look at on the ground, um, things like hiring Josh Revac, those seem to be not only shrewd moves politically, um, but anyone who knows Josh Revac, if you know him, incredibly hard worker. And when he worked for Don Young and Dan Sullivan, incredible constituent work. So, you know, not only is that a smart political move, hey, you know, hire one of your Republican opponents, but holy cow, constituent work in a small population state is the bread and butter of a congresswoman. So to me, those outward appearances appear to be real smart moves. Now there's going to be a lot of tough votes. So we we will see. Long way to go there. But I think that, you know, the robust support of the Willow Project, if she and Senator Murkowski can influence the Biden administration to make sure the Willow goes forward, those are some pretty nice, you know, that's a couple of touchdowns on the board, I would say. So um you know, somebody could look back. I, I <laughs> like I've had a conversation with folks who don't live here and they're like, I have they're like, I can't describe Alaska because in terms of politics, because you have, you know, in November, you have Dunleavy who won, who's unapologetically pro-life. You have Murkowski that's a moderate kind of in the middle. And then you have Mary Patola, Congresswoman Mary Patola, who's unapologetically pro-choice. Uh, huge, broad spectrum of ideas. All three won. What do you think this says about Alaska and politics? Um, it, it says, you know, two things. I mean, I think, first of all, you know, the polling shows Alaska is on balance a pro-choice state. The number has been in the 60s for a couple of decades. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a continuum of thought on that. But it does mean that, you know, we are much more pro-choice than I think people would expect from sort of our political profile nationally. I think the first part of it is, 
people feel relatively secure with Alaska and Alaska's constitution, which does explicitly protect choice. So that's kind of, you know, item number one. Item number two is that Alaskans politics is so much more three-dimensional than just thinking of moving left to right. It's, um, you know, we're kind of a la carte. Um, you know, we might support Mary Paltola because we like her her attitudes on fish. We might support Lisa Murkowski because of her seniority. And someone might support uh, Mike Dunleavy because they say, hey, you know, he handled COVID in a balanced way. And I I really did get that $3,400 PFD. I mean, that's a that's a pretty powerful you know, piece of your campaign to land in someone's bank account weeks before the election. So I think there's a real plausible explanation. I can imagine a voter who ranked all three of them first, and it's not it's not a leap to imagine. Yeah, I, that. I, I know people who did that. Many people. Yeah. So what do you what do you think? This is a little bit in the weeds for folks, but I'm interested on in your take on this. Um, that there's a new freshman caucus that's formed. I don't know if this has been done in, in recent times, but I think they've got man 13 people or something in this caucus. I oftentimes think, well, these are just going to be more meetings that people meet about to have other meetings. What are your thoughts on this kind of freshman group forming in Alaska? Do you think it's going to be beneficial? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, um, the top line for me would be when people talk to each other, it's always better. Um, if these folks are socializing, having dinner together, you know, you're going to find those those um, odd places where they align and actually get stuff done. I do think that, you know, sort of the the wide-eyed altruism will probably collide with, you know, caucus politics, partisan politics. Like there will be, there will be a rub at some point. But I will say, I've met most of these freshmen I've met, and if I didn't know because I'm terminally online and always following these things, I don't know in most cases if I'd be able to say that's the Democrat, that's the Republican. It's a lot of people who are running, and I, I like as I like to say, there are people who run for the wrong reasons and the right reasons. The wrong reasons just being you know, self-aggrandizement. They just want it for their ego. But most of these freshmen really seem to be there because they're like, I care about educating kids. I care about keeping the budget under control. I care about services. And with that much common ground, I'm I'm pretty optimistic that to some degree, these relationships are genuine and will lead to good things. That being said, you know, at some point we're going to have an on the floor meltdown between caucuses. You know, it's, you know, politics it's, will it's happen. happen. <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen. But What's refreshing, because, you know, I, I, when I worked for as chief of staff to Governor Walker, you know, I was sort of his primary legislative, yeah, I was the tip of the spear on legislative negotiations. And without naming any names, I will not tell you how many times I would talk to a legislator and say, hey, can we support this legis other legislator's bill from the other caucus? It's common sense. And something would be raised to me like, you know, no, one time 10 years ago, they snubbed me in the lunchroom. So forget it. You know, I think fresh blood coming in where there's not a lot of that kind of nonsense, it's going to be, I think it's going to be real positive. So what are you excited about with Alaska? Um, what are some things that you think are on the horizon that are going to be good for uh, Alaska's in general? I mean, I do think, um, you know, this, we're turning this corner, uh, I think, uh, I like to think optimistically on POMB and so forth, that we're not going to kill the golden goose. You know, we... We will have the ability to support ourselves on into the future if we get it right. Now, that does require continuing to develop our resources in a reasonable way and so forth. But if we can really turn this corner, I mean, sky's the limit. We have more resources than any other state in the country. We've got a, a permanent fund that can largely support, not only support our, our services that we need, but also provide some injection of capital in, 
into every Alaskan's bank account. And then we've got the natural beauty, you know, you see right out my window, who wouldn't trade places, you know, which state wouldn't trade places with us for that? Um, I know I wouldn't. So I'm excited about that because tourism, if we do some of the things um, with develop of LNG and hydrogen, we could do, we could start manufacturing. Um, I think the governor's idea about carbon sequestration could revolutionize things. I mean, you could imagine piping LNG down to your, the Kenai Peninsula, using it to produce hydrogen and sequestering the carbon that's produced in that process. I mean, we could we could be the clean economy of the future. So that's all the excitement. I mean, the 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 worried part of me is what if for reasons of failing to invest in workforce or childcare, what if we missed this golden opportunity and we sort of go back to being a colony where, you know, outside interests come in, extract the resources, extract the value, and the Alaskans don't benefit. So I think we're on this nice edge of opportunity versus being exploited. But I, I like to remain optimistic that we're turning that corner towards opportunity. I like that. What about um, the carbon credit thing? What's your what's your take specifically on that? And maybe, uh, you know, feel free to go in depth a little bit about it, because I think a lot for a lot of folks, myself included, people that listen to Must Read Alaska, we kind of hear that. and We're like, yeah, it kind of sounds like a fairy tale, green new idea that's never going to pan out. So. Talk to me a little bit about just, you know, in general, what those are and what does it mean for Alaska if it were to go through? Yeah. Um, well, I'll start, first of all, with kind of the framing device, which is, um, you know, I believe we emit a lot of carbon. I believe that it has some impact on our climate. And so that, that's my starting point. Not everyone shares that, but I believe that to be true. Now, if if carbon is impacting the environment and Alaska's, you know, obviously on the front lines of climate change, what are we doing? Because we don't, you know, we don't value carbon in a sense of it's it's an externality that's impacting our environment. But if you emit it, there's essentially no sanction. So we're asking Americans to be virtuous, reduce their carbon. And in the meantime, we're competing with other countries that emit carbon three to four times the rate doing the same activities. So what I know is we can't, you know, we can't fight economically with one hand behind our back. So we there does need to be a large um, solution, I think, at a federal level on how we value carbon, um, which would feed into there being a value in sequestering the carbon. Now, I will say, you know, I share a little bit of your skepticism about this idea of carbon credits. Like, there there certainly have been scams. You know, if, if a, someone wants to build a factory outside LA and they they say, well, I'm going to buy a 100-year lease on a stand of black spruce outside Fairbanks, and therefore I, I emitted no carbon. That's a fantasy. That doesn't, <laughs> you and I know they're not cutting down that black spruce because the beetles are killing it. So they're not preserving a forest. You know, that kind of stuff, there is a scam element to it. Now, if you're talking about scientifically sequestering carbon and it being embedded and, and, and bonded with the earth below Cook Inlet, that that's real you know that's not um science fiction that's real science um there are you know preserving the tongass that's obviously a rainforest that's meaningful but i think we have to beware the snake oil element of all this mm -hmm. but at the end of the day to me all of this is going to come down to something they call a border carbon adjustment which is whatever we're doing to ourselves on carbon we have to make sure we're imposing that on the rest of the world Otherwise, we're just asking other countries to dominate our economy. Now, if we say, um, 
we're going to deal with carbon this way. And China, India, Russia, if you don't deal with it that way, we're going to assess you at the border with what they call a border carbon adjustment. Now, all of a sudden, our steel is more competitive than anyone else's in the country. Alaska's oil is actually produced with lower carbon than anywhere else in the world. All of a sudden, we're at the top. It, it sounds counterintuitive that, you know, pricing carbon and putting some sort of carbon management scheme in effect could help us in Alaska, but it would because we don't flare our gas largely. You know, we we have, um, we're not extracting oil from tar sands. We're extracting it from large pools of conventional oil. We have existing infrastructure, which is very efficient in taps to transport the oil. So it actually, that's the optimism part of it for me is that if we make this shift, I don't know of anywhere better better suited to it than Alaska. Well, Scott, it's always good chatting with you. I think that, uh, you know, like I said before, when we when you're on, I think in December, I think uh, more folks need to get together and chat uh, that may not agree. And, and these kind of discussions uh, help folks just understand where people are coming from. So I'm sure that I'm going to get some 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 interesting responses, but um, I think that it's worth it because um, you know people need to get together and chat. And so, Scott, I really appreciate you coming on the Mustery Alaska show. Yeah, thanks, John. It's a pleasure. I'll see you soon. Sounds good. Well, thanks everybody for tuning into the Mustery Alaska, and uh, we're gonna have I'm gonna have uh, Mayor of the Matsu Borough on tomorrow, and then I'm gonna have uh, Gosh, who was I gonna have on? I'm having Representative Jamie Allard on Friday, and I do have somebody on Thursday as well, but we have a packed lineup this week, six shows this week. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Until next time, I'm John Quick from somewhere in Alaska.